things that we do are not necessarily old or new. We need to place value on them based on what they say, what they mean, how they work. And, uh, and remember that everything's cycling back around, isn't it? What <laughs> Everything is cycling back around. However, there is one thing that doesn't change, and that's the truth, the truth of God's Word. And so we want to look today at some of that truth. I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. Now, I don't know, we took a break last week to talk a little bit about themed message on uh, 4th of July, but we're going to pick back up in Acts chapter 4. My wife informed me, she's like, man, it seems like we've been in Acts forever. Well, I don't want you to get too discouraged. We're going to be there for a little bit longer, okay? We're only on chapter 4, but hopefully we're going to make it exciting and relevant. You say, why don't we do this? Well, we really want to take a look and see what happened in that local church and how the early church achieved some of the things that they were able to achieve. And our hope is that as we look at how God spoke to those people in that day, He will also speak to us so that we can see how to better live for Him in this day. This is the ultimate goal. This is why we have preaching. We want to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to learn about Him and how we might apply some of His truth to our life. And if Acts chapter 4, we're at the stage of verses 32 through 37. Not a long reading today, but I would ask you to stand with me as we honor the reading of the text. I know some of you, especially Todd, love to stand like that. I I like to do that, you know, because it gets things moving. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32, it says, All the believers were united in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. May God bless the public reading of his word. You may be seated. So we see a snapshot here into the life of the early church. Now it's very important that at this point we we remember that we can't go back to exactly what they did in the early church. See, it's a fool's errand. It's, 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 it's a waste of time to try to go back to the old days and to try to capture something that is gone. See, time is moving on a continuum, and it's always changing. Now, we can look back to see what was done, how things were done, what was good, what was bad, and how we may apply them in the present. But don't get lost chasing what was in the past. Now, so we, when we, what does that mean for as we look back at the Bible and see what God was doing? So how do we take what God was doing in this moment in the past and apply the principles that were that were happening there, the truth that's being revealed there into what we're doing here in the 21st century. And this is a little bit challenging here because their world was different. Their economy was different. Their society was different. Now, it's, it's irrelevant to try to say what's better or worse. It was just different. You, you don't get to go to there. You don't get to create a new society. you got to live in the one that you're in. And you got to figure out how to apply the truth that God has revealed in His Word to the society that you live in. They seem to be living in a very communal way here in this moment. You know, it was a different world. But there are some principles here. I'm going to call them keys, all right? Keys 
that we see that made them successful in God's kingdom. And I believe that the three keys we're going to look at that they possessed are universal. And so today in the 21st century in the United States of America at the Pineville Christian Church, we should strive to see and understand how to apply these keys to success in God's kingdom. Now, you may say, well, how do you know they were successful? Now, there's a lot of different definitions of success, and certainly I I don't want to claim to be the guru on that by any means, but, but I want to point to what the Bible says here that demonstrates the kind of success I'm talking about in God's kingdom, okay? Because there's, there's lots of versions, very, you know, good versions of success, but this is the one we're talking about right here. Look what it says in verse 33. It says, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So this is, this is success in the kingdom when you're powerfully testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. So God was working so powerfully in this group of believers that there was no one who was needy. His grace was flowing powerfully to everyone involved. Now, if we're honest, we would have to say, man, God's grace is not always powerfully being expressed in my own life. Maybe I'm not powerfully testifying on a constant basis to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If, however, you're here today... You're watching this and you're 100% there. You have my permission. Play on your phone. Do whatever it is you need to do. If you're already batting a thousand on this, this is for all the rest of us who aren't quite there yet, okay? And who need to achieve a higher measure of success in God's kingdom. And so for those of us, we want to look at these three keys that are there. The first key that these folks possessed that was an ingredient really for success in the kingdom was they understood what unity was. Look what it says right there. It says, all the believers were unified in heart and mind. You know, we talked last week about this great country, the what? The United States of America. They were united for a common cause. You see, to be successful in the kingdom of God, the church has to be united. They have to have unity. Now, Don't get lost and think of the church as this other thing. Because ultimately, you remember the the deal you learned as a child? What do they say? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open up the door and what? All the people. See, the people's the church. You're the church. If you're a baptized believer, then you are a member of the church. Now, if you have not become a baptized believer, you may be sitting outside of of the church and saying, hey, how do I be a part of that? I want to encourage you. This is a way to join the church, is to, is to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to, to be baptized into His kingdom. But at that point, you become part of the church and you exist as an individual. So guess what? You have to work towards unity individually. Now, some people, what do you mean by that? Look, if you know it, you don't always have unity in your own mind. Have you ever wrestled with yourself? You ever struggle to do what's right and then part of you wants to do what's wrong? It's not always easy to find unity within your own spirit. I meet people all the time who are who are throwing their life away to drugs, alcohol, sex, all kind of things because they can't find unity in their own spirit. They're still wrestling, battling. So it starts there. But then you out, you don't just exist as an individual. You're in some sort of family unit. Any of you have unity all the time in your family? That's not always easy, right? 
So guess what? As a church member, you have to find a way to, to find unity within your family. And then beyond just your family, you, you're part of, a, of an enlarged community. That might be your local church like this church or some other organizations that you're in. And then ultimately, we're a part of the worldwide church. Now, unity is so, so important. I'm reminded of the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Now, you know, Jesus, when he was on the earth, he had a, he had some important things to do, right? I mean, this was, he had a few years to accomplish something of tremendous importance. And as he approached the end of his time on this earth, he prayed for the disciples, but he also prayed for you and I. And I want you to hear what he prayed for, because what he prayed for in that moment is indicative of how important this idea of unity is. In John chapter 17, I want to read to you what Jesus prayed in verses 20 through 23. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone, being the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. You know, I do find great comfort that when Jesus was on this earth, He was thinking about me. He was thinking about you. He was praying for those who would believe his message through what the apostles had done. And listen to what he prayed for, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, I think when I read that prayer that Jesus prayed, I get some sense that that has not come to full fruition in this world today. I'm reminded of another prayer that Jesus prayed. He said, Father, may your will be done on earth please, as it is in heaven. Because I, I confess, I don't see unity here on earth. We have not brought this into reality. And there's a point here, just because you pray for something, even when Jesus prayed for it, it didn't always happen because why? People have to choose. People have to live. Every individual in here gets to choose the path of their life. And unity is a very difficult path. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to unity, do you want unity? You see, wanting unity is huge because unity is one of those things that if one party in the process doesn't want it, guess what? You can't have it. You got coercion. To have unity, you got to want unity. Do you want unity in your life? Do you want unity with the people in your family? with the people at your church? Do you want unity with those in the church at large? Now see, here's where it gets complicated. Because the problem with unity is unity is built on selflessness instead of what? Selfishness. Bob loves to point out, and I love it when he does, you can't overemphasize it. We can't belabor this point is that, that at our church, as part of the restoration movement, we said what in essentials, what? Unity. Look, you, you gotta have unity in the essentials, which, which really are a lot less than what people think they are. The problem is 
We all think that everything that's important to us is essential. But exactly what we need to do is what the Bible says is essential. Beyond that, all the rest are opinions. And we should have liberty and all of these different things like that. But, but you have to want unity. Do you want it? If you don't want it, you won't get it. Nobody can force you to have unity at all in any relationship. Because even if they think they are forcing you to, guess what? Under the surface, you have a resistance that's quiet and ultimately is going to bubble out somewhere else. All right? You got to want unity. The second thing, you got to work for unity. Unity doesn't happen on its own. You know why? Because every one of us are individuals. We all want what we want. We all have a set of, of things that we feel are important. The ways that we want it done. Look, you, you think it's not easy or not hard to have unity in a marriage? Because what? We all like things a certain way. You know, if you got to talk to my wife, she would tell you a long list of the things that I don't do right and all the list of things that I could do better at, and she would be correct. And I could find a few things that I could say about her as well, and I would be correct. But you know what? Unity, being united as a family, is more important than what? Than all of those particular things, or they should be. But here's the problem. In the moment, that's not easy. Because in the moment, I want to value what I want more than I value unity. At church, how many churches have I ever heard of who, who split? They lost effectiveness because they couldn't have unity because somebody was worried about this, the kind of music, what? The kind of instruments, the clothes that somebody was wearing, the color of somebody's skin who came in, the color of the carpet. Oh my goodness. Can you think about what God must feel whenever he looks down on a church who values all of these insignificant things more than unity? You see, to work for unity means that you have to give up something that might be important to you for the greater cause. And the problem is that isn't what we want to do. Very few of us are signing up for that, right? I want to give up something that's important to me for a greater cause. I want to give up a preference that I have or something that I like. Because why? We live in a world that says what? Get it the way you want it. I mean, you deserve it. You work hard. You're an important person. You deserve it. I mean, you deserve to go to church and be happy, to be comfortable, to be whatever. You deserve that in your life. Really? Do you? Do I? What are we here for? To have unity, you have to set aside or at least properly prioritize what's important to you and balance it out with what is important to others and how they feel and how they think. Now, I'm not saying be a doormat and just always give in and let everybody do what they want to do. Sometimes to preserve unity, but in the whole, you may have to address somebody who's doing something wrong. They're not doing what's right. What they're doing is causing disunity. And that's what leads to this idea. If you want unity, you've got to protect it. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. You don't have unity and say, okay, we're unified, and we're always going to be unified. It doesn't work that way. In your marriage, with yourself, with everybody in your life, it's not like unity is just achieved, and then you're just there in a constant state of unity. Nope. Why? Because we're all broken. We're all fighting against our selfishness. We're choosing our way. They're choosing their way. And the more inputs that you have into the mix, guess what? 
the more difficult it is. You've got to protect it. Do you protect unity in your family? When you know something that's going to trigger other people or it's going to cause something to, to go afoul, do you, do you avoid those things? I confess, I tend, in error, in sinfulness actually, the Bible says fathers don't exacerbate your children. I tend to be someone who likes to needle people. Don't say nothing. I like to bother people. I, that's just my nature. I like to kind of get a rise out of people. I like to aggravate people. I don't really, maybe I do, I don't know. I don't think of it in that I'm doing it in a bad way or that I mean a lot of harm. But there are times whenever I know that to really agitate one of my children or somebody that I work with or whatever, I get some pleasure out of getting them excited. And I don't really have this idea that I'm really trying to harm them. But sometimes that's not promoting unity. It's really promoting that I just enjoy doing that, or it's, I think it's funny, or whatever. And I, you know, and it's not that I'm doing something that you would look at and go, "Oh, that's terrible to do." But here's the problem: is that doesn't promote unity in your family with people around you, and it's certainly not protecting it because some people can't, in a moment, deal with things the same way as others. Do you protect that when you see something that really bothers your spouse or somebody in your family? Do you protect the unity by kind of helping that stay away from them? Parents, fathers, do you do that with your kids? You should. Do you protect unity in the church? See something that could potentially be a crisis, that could cause problems, divisions. Do you go out of your way to avoid that and maybe address it before it becomes that way? This is an important part of protecting unity. And in the early church, it says they had complete unity in heart and mind. And we saw that whenever Peter and John did what? They came back and they went and they straight told the, their, all of them what happened. They were just on board on the same page. You know, are you and I on the same page when it comes to the kingdom of God? We need to strive for that. The second ingredient or key to their success in God's kingdom was this idea of sacrifice. Look what it says right here. It says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. You know, as I've been preparing, this has been really challenging because I, I've had to ask myself, how, how big a part does sacrifice play in my own Christianity? You see, when Jesus was here, He made some statements that are challenging to a modern person. He said it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And the truth is, every person who in here is rich compared to anybody who's ever lived on this earth. Every one of us is in, if you take all the people who have ever lived, we're all top one percenters, okay? So by any objective measurement, we're rich. So what does Jesus mean it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Why? Because when we have riches, we tend to want to hold on to them and we want to make it be about ourselves. Now the early church folks here, they achieved a level of sacrifice that's very challenging for us to think about and think about how do I translate that into this particular economy, into this particular world in which I live. You see, it's very easy to say, well, that was back then, that doesn't apply. But we can't, if we're honest, we can't do that. We have to figure out what does it really mean for us? The wrong answer is to say, oh, that's just how that worked back then. That's not, that's not the answer. The answer is how does this translate into my world? This idea 
of sacrifice. And I think we have to start with this idea that, that it's, that we have to be selfless. Not, it's not mine. See, that's the problem. If you think everything you have is yours, it's going to be very difficult to sacrifice. You got to start with the fact that everything you possess was really given to you by God. Even if you worked hard to earn it, He gave you the work ethic. He gave you the energy. He gave you the strength. And some people didn't get that. So you got to start with this idea that it's really not mine. I'm a steward of this while I'm here on this earth. And many of us have been blessed tremendously. All of us. The fact that we rode here in a car. The fact that when we get ready to go eat, one of the things that's going to be the hardest decision is where do we go? Where are we going to go eat? Who's going to go cook our food for us? And all the little things. Look, we, we're so blessed. It's unbelievable. And it, when you think about it in terms like that and you put your little problems financially into the into perspective with how blessed we are, it's really almost embarrassing for us to think about that many people in this world are trying to figure out where they're going to go get water from today, how they're going to have enough food to survive the month, and our biggest challenge is where we're going to go eat. What do we want for today, you know? My kids, I, I don't want that. You know what I'm saying? And, and we gotta, we gotta get our minds right because we can very easily get off track and become selfish. And it's not even our intent because we're part of this system that says, get what you want, when you want it, how you want it, you deserve it. And it's not a selfless, sacrificial mentality. I think about this idea of sacrifice and I, I can't help but think about the Old Testament system. You know, some people wonder, I mean, what, what was this whole idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system about? You know, because in the Old Testament, you know, they from the very beginning, part of their religious practice was the killing of animals to appease, you know what I'm saying, to atone for their sins and different things like that. But really, when you whittle all that away, the biggest thing is your sacrifice was something that you were giving up to honor God because of either your sinfulness or because of your gratefulness. And so this idea of sacrifice is that you're giving up something of value to honor God. Now, just like anything else in humanity, what happens? They created rules, regulations, and they made it about, okay, well, I can do whatever I want. It's really not what's in my heart. All i got to do is kill the animal, do that. That's the same thing people do today. I don't have to live right. I don't have to live sacrificially. I don't have to be selfless. I can be selfish as long as I go to church at least once or twice a month, as long as I do this, and, and then we get off track. That's why in the Bible it says God wants more of justice than sacrifice in a religious sense. But sacrifice that He likes, listen to what Hebrews 13, 16 says. It says, and don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. You realize that God is pleased when you make a sacrifice to share and help those who are in need? It seems so little. Why do we do stuff like this? Because this is, this is a, a small sacrifice. At the very least, when you went to the store, you had to kind of go out of your way and pick up something. Some of you gave, gave, gave great thought to it. Way more thought than my brain even could, could imagine. What size would be the most helpful to the most number of people. Some people have spent a good bit of money on this. Some people maybe more money than their budget would allow. It's a sacrifice and it pleases God. Now, don't give yourself too many stars. 
because a sacrifice is supposed to really cost something. I'm reminded of the story of David in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. And there's a very interesting story where David is, is wanting to, to make a tremendous sacrifice to God. And he's the king. And so he goes out and he, he wants to kind of make this or demonstrate this sacrifice to God that's very visible and he wants to, you know, buy these ox and do the threshing floor. And he goes and the guy, there was a guy there, kind of like a local provincial leader. His name was, I can't even say it, Aruna or something like that. And so Aruna, when he hears that David wants to make this sacrifice, says, hey, look, you don't even have to pay for it. Look, there's no way that I'm. this guy says, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to pay for it. You don't even have to pay for it. And I want you to listen to what David's reply is to this guy because it points to a very important concept related to sacrifice. David replies, the king replied, No, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have not cost me something, or that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. Now I want you to just think about that a minute. What have your sacrifices to God cost you? Or are you just kind of like going on the coattails of what somebody else is doing? I mean, is your sacrifice to God's kingdom a couple hours a month? And if it is, if that's all it is, do you feel like that's worthy of what He's done for you? When you look at what you've sacrificed for God, Okay. What and look, don't don't just limit it just to church because it's bigger than that. What you do outside of church, but but in all honesty, when you look at the sacrifices that you've made for God, okay, in His kingdom, how you feel about them? You feel like, man, I'm doing everything I could do. I don't. Cause see, the problem is, as I've been thinking about this, there's like a shadow over me, metaphorically. And it's like the shadow of that. And it's like the sacrifice He made on the cross like overshadows all the things that I think I'm doing. And it points to what real sacrifice is. It says, hey, I'm willing to give up everything. Now, you've got to live in the world so you can't like literally give up everything. You've got to live, but it's all about your heart. And so I ask you today, as I've asked myself, are you proud, are you satisfied with the sacrifices that you are making for God's kingdom? If you are, fantastic. You deserve to be praised and championed. If you're not, maybe it's time to reevaluate what those things are. Are you willing to give up something that's of value to you for God's kingdom? And I started thinking about what that could mean. You know, I don't always give. It's going to shock some of you. I don't always give 110% on my sermon preparation. You know why? Because I'm a busy person. I got a lot of stuff to do. I'm important. I have companies to run. I have people who are counting on me. Really? Really? That's my excuse? I can't give 110% on what should be most important to me because of this long laundry list of other things I've got. 
well, you know what? I don't always treat the people in my life with the kindness that I should. And I don't always give as much as I should and do all the things I should. And I got all these reasons, same reasons you got as to why you don't have to or why you shouldn't or why you're exempt. But the truth is, that's all bull. The reality is, the more you sacrifice for God, the better your life's going to be. The better the lives of those around you are going to be. And so I want to challenge you as I challenge myself. Ask yourself this question and answer it honestly. I mean, you don't have to, but I mean, if you really want to be sincere, I mean, what have I really sacrificed for God? And maybe a more important question than what you have done in the past is what am I willing to sacrifice today? I mean, what are you willing to give up for God? Are you willing to give up some of your extra time because maybe little children need you to teach the Bible? Are you willing to give up a day off to go help somebody who's in need? Are you willing to give up your right to be wronged? What, what do you mean by that? See, some people are so self-important that anytime somebody says something to them or does something to them, they, they feel offended by that or they're upset. And, and it's very possible that the people who said it were wrong. But there's a whole big difference between moving on and letting go and versus holding on to it. And it takes giving up that right. Are you willing to give up something in your life for God? Man, look, I've, I've wrestled with that in my own life. What does that mean? How do I make this a part of my faith experience? And I want to encourage you, don't just let it be, oh, that's what they did. No, no, it's what can I do? I think about that old school song, Oliver, you said, the old school song. It's, there's a line in there that says what? You search much deeper within than the way things appear. You see, appearances aren't everything. You can actually look like you're really doing something but maybe there's not something really happening in your heart. So I want to encourage you, make it a reality. For them, their sacrifice was so prevalent, so manifest, that look, they didn't even think of their property as their own. Like they were so committed to the cause of the kingdom that they were willing to do what? Everything they owned was ours. We're all going to work for it. Now look, this is bold. I mean, this is, I mean, this is unbelievable, really. But it's no more bold than a man walking by somebody who's crippled and saying, hey, get up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, all of these things, this, this, this whole experience that they had were keys to connecting to what God's doing. I'm not there. But I want to get closer. And I know that one of the keys to getting closer connection to God is to make sacrifice a huge part of what I'm doing. I want what I do for God to cost something. I don't want it to be a tip. I want it to cost me something. I want it to be something of value. I hope that you do as well. And the third part of that really flows out of these things all flow together that you see in this group of people is the third key, man, is the generosity that they had. You know, generosity is such an important part of God's economy. It's like just, it's, it's part of the fabric, generosity. And so many of you are so generous, it's unbelievable. And it's, it flows out of your commitment to God. And I want you to look at even a few verses from the Old Testament. 
course, you see right there in them, they were so generous. Look, the guy guy sold a piece of property. And, and I, look, I know about selling property. I sell property. Some of you sell property. I mean, you know, it's a pretty generous thing to sell an entire piece of property and go and say, look, I don't want any of this money. I want you to take all of this money and I want you to, I want you to use it to help those who are in need. Look, I mean, that's easy to say. But I mean, that's that's something. That's generous, man. I mean, because you paid a lot of money for this property. Maybe you did a lot of work to, to, to improve it. You know, maybe it's something that's of high value to you. So it's a very generous, sacrificial act to say, look, I, I'm going to do, I want you guys to use that to help those who are in need. It's unbelievable. Psalms chapter 112, verse 5, and in Proverbs chapter 11, Listen to how this principle of generosity flows throughout the entire Scriptures. Look what it says here. It says, Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. See, there's so many people in this life who are holding on to everything they got so tightly and they can't understand why they feel like they got nothing. Because they're greedy, stingy, worried about what they're going to get instead of what? What they can give. Look, generosity is part of God's plan. You want to see church do well? You want to, and I say, remember, you're the church. So when you see you do well, you want to see your family unit that's part of the church, you want to see this local church do well, guess what? Be generous. Look, lend freely, help people. Don't hold on and think, what can I get? Think about what I can give. There's probably no better example of this. And it, this isn't just money, by the way, okay? I mean, money's just just a currency. There's many, many things that you can give of. We just happen to be a currency-driven society today, but they weren't even really driven as much by that then. But I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says in this particular text. He's writing a letter back to the church in Corinth. All right, And the context of this letter is a gift that they were going to give to the believers in Jerusalem. It appears that these Greek folks who were in Corinth were more wealthy than the poor Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem. And so the context here is a gift that they were giving to them. Paul writes, Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the Scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, He will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. 
for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. You realize that generosity could be your ministry? You know, people think of ministry and they automatically think that it's, that it's something like a being a preacher or being up here playing music and those have a role. Man, no less of a role is the ministry of generosity. I think about those pictures. We don't always have them up here, but I wish we would. You'd think I'd be in charge enough to be able to make that happen, but I'm not. Is those pictures of those churches that we've built in the Philippines. Man, and I hear, I remember the story of Ed talking about the people who walk through muddy monsoon rains to go to those buildings so they can worship and praise God. And I think, man, some of you, some of the people in this church, I mean, they gave sacrificially and generously so that those churches could be built in the Philippines. I see the generosity of people and I move because that is a ministry. Maybe more important than a lot of them. Man, because what? Two good things happen. Number one, needs are met. And then when they're met, somebody thanks God. I, I'm so humbled. I, I'll start crying if I think about this too much, about those folks in Cuba. You remember whenever a few, a few years ago they wanted to do something at this little church in Cuba and Robert was here and he preached and they just, they just wanted $300. They were praying. Praying. I mean, a church full of people praying that God would send them $300 to be able to help in their community. $300. Holy smokes. I spent $100 taking somebody kids out to eat this weekend. They're over there praying on their knees, fasting for somebody to send $300. And we're over here blowing money like it ain't nothing. Look, we got to sometimes get our minds right. You think you're always being generous, but maybe, 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 maybe sometimes our priorities are a little out of whack. Now, the good news to that story is in one Sunday, what did we raise? 3000 Bob? Huh? $3,500. Some people really stepped up and they were generous. And look, I'll just think about, man, whenever I saw that text that that girl sent back through Messenger, she thought, she thought that this church was a miracle working church. That's what she thought. Unbelievable. I mean, they prayed on their knees, and guess what? God's generosity opened up to them, and I mean, they were able to do so much with way more than they could have imagined. Fantastic. We, we, we praise God that we had an opportunity to do that. But man... What if, what if we, what if we really got serious? I mean, what if I got serious? I can't, I'm not really, I'm not, I can't judge, I don't judge you and I don't want to compel you to do anything that you don't feel led to do. I'm, I'm speaking to myself here. What if I really wanted to be generous? What if I really, really wanted to sacrifice? What if I really, really wanted unity? I confess to you. There's some things that I have to that, that not just have to, they're going to. They gotta change. You see, you can't stay the way you are and be the way God wants you to be. Whether you're here, whether you're watching this, if you want to say, I'm gonna be of who God wants me to be, 
You can't stay where you are. you got to start moving to be who He wants you to be. And if we want to be effective, we could start by really valuing you, championing sacrifice, and trying to be just as generous as we can. I want to encourage you. Ask God to show you how. I'm, I'm doing that in my own life, my own personal prayer life. God, how, how can I promote unity in my life? How can I make the right kind of sacrifices? And ultimately, how can I be generous, more generous? That's what I want to be known for. See, if you asked everybody that knows me, I don't know that those would be the things they would say about me. Some of them would, but not everybody. I want to be a champion for that, and that's what I want our church to be. And it starts as I do better and as you do better and continue to do the things that we're supposed to do. Of course, this has never been revealed to us more perfectly than how? The life of Jesus. I mean, He showed us. That's why the New Testament says what? Be imitators of Christ. Because He did that. Unity with the Father, unity with the believers, sacrifice, my goodness, generosity, the pinnacle. As we think about communion, Bob's going to lead us in communion today. I want this communion time today, when you meditate on that a minute, I want you to put into perspective how much Jesus valued unity, what He was willing to sacrifice, and how generous He was to you and to I. Let's pray. Father, help us to apply these keys in our own life, to be more of who You would have us to be so that others could come to understand the greatness and goodness of Your love through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in sincerity and in the name of Jesus today. Amen.